Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I'm coming into you hot and live on this Thursday evening as a special bonus episode is unfolding for us. There were just way too many amazing news stories going on this week that I could not wait until the end of the week to post a new episode. So I'm posting this very special bonus episode for you guys midweek so you can kind of get a feel for what's going on in the news. In particular, a case that we covered earlier, Jennifer Dulos, there has been some progress on this case. And I know we promised to give you guys updates as they come in. But here is one of the updates. This article came out, author Michael Gold in the New York Times, and it's been splashed across various different news agencies as the information has come in. But this particular article that I got most of my information from was called Jennifer Dulos, How the Police Made a Nobody Murder Case. The blood on Jennifer's Range Rover was the first clue that her disappearance last May could turn into something sinister. And we covered this case in a lot more detail before. So if you want more information about it, go check out our earlier episode. This week, though, brought more revelations from the police that has added to a mystery that has indeed gripped the public as far as this case is concerned. Jennifer Dulos's blood was discovered on the seat of a car her estranged husband had borrowed on the day that she disappeared. Nearly two dozen items with her DNA were also found in garbage cans 75 miles from her suburban Connecticut home. There was also her ongoing evil divorce case that had been going on for quite some time. She was a mother of five and said that she worried she was in danger. And she had told friends and family and the court about this feeling that she had. Yet each and every new detail that comes forward makes it more likely that she met with a violent end. But there has been one particular detail that has prevented prosecutors from moving forward with charges against her husband. And that is one extremely key piece of evidence, her body. They have not been able to find it up until this point. And last week, nearly eight months after Jennifer Dulos went missing, prosecutors accused her estranged husband, Fotis, of murdering her. And this is the information that many of us have been dying to hear about. There was a warrant issued charging Fotis Dulos, 52, with murder kidnapping, and all sorts of other things related to covering up this crime. And in that charge, officials detailed their meticulous investigation of this man. They drew a lot of their evidence from blood spatter analysis and DNA evidence to conclude that Jennifer Dulos was fatally attacked. There was absolutely no way that that much blood in that many places could have happened without Jennifer Dulos losing her life. They also used phone records and surveillance footage and interviews to build this tremendous case against Photos Dulos, who has constantly and consistently from the very beginning of this case denied any involvement in Jennifer's disappearance. But they're beginning to piece together Fotis's every move. So there is this tremendous laborious process and kind of a script that prosecutors have to execute in murder cases where the body is missing. At the end of the day, the puzzle 
is going to have a major missing piece, according to federal prosecutors. So you need to have enough of the other pieces that people who are looking at this from the outside in can see the entire puzzle. Now, that makes a tremendous amount of sense when you put it like that. But murder charges without a body are relatively rare. And we've kind of spoken about these on earlier episodes of the show as well. These types of cases where a body is not ever found, although many times the person who perpetuated the crime may think they've gotten off scot-free because there's no body, we know for a fact that this is not necessarily the case, particularly in the case of Patrick Fraze, who had the Kelsey Barrett. They never found the body with her either, but they were able to prosecute him. But let's talk in a little bit more detail about cases without a body. Despite what we may think as a society, the extra burden might actually make convictions more likely. Prosecutors and researchers looking into this issue have tracked 526 cases that have gone to trial in the U.S. since the early 19th century without bodies. And of those cases, 86% of them resulted in convictions. Nationally, the conviction rate for all murder cases is only about 70%, according to the Federal Bureau of Justice Statistics. Only the very best no-body murder cases actually go to trial, experts say. And this, I think, is kind of the case with many cases that come through the court system. Only a very small fraction of the cases that are actually filed in the courts end up going to trial. The Connecticut State Police declined to comment on the Dulos investigation, citing a gag order that has been issued in this case. The state prosecutor in charge of the case also didn't respond to requests for comment, but that's not unusual when you've got a case going on like this. But law enforcement officials that are familiar with this case have gathered a lot more information than they are disclosing to the public. The charges brought against FOTUS and two others accused of conspiracy to commit murder, Michelle Traconis, 45, She's Fotis's girlfriend, and Kent Mohini, 54, a friend, were based on more than what was disclosed in the warrants, the police say. The investigation into Jennifer Dulos's disappearance began May 24th when her nanny and a close friend of hers called the police after they became concerned she might be missing. And all of this is stated in the warrants as well. But the nanny told officers she had reason to suspect foul play because she had gone to Jennifer's home that afternoon in New Canaan, Connecticut, and found Jennifer's handbag, even though Jennifer was not home. And we ladies know that we do not leave our handbags laying around and unless the person was there. Inside the house, the nanny also went looking for paper towels after she decided to clean up after Jennifer Dulos had left a mug out. But when she went to get more towels from the pantry, she found there were only two rolls of paper towels, despite having placed a 12-pack there the night before. Her worry also grew tenfold when she texted Jennifer Dulos a bunch of times and all of these texts went unanswered and phone calls went straight to voicemail. And in the past, her interaction with Jennifer had never been like this. She said, in almost seven years she has worked with Jennifer, I have never, ever had a hard time reaching her. And that's her exact quote. But when the police arrived that night, they found blood in Jennifer Dulos's Range Rover and in her garage. 
second car, which we spoke of in the earlier show, but also belonging to Jennifer, was found abandoned next to a 300-acre park about three miles from her home in New Canaan. Detectives ultimately determined that the blood did belong to Jennifer Dulos, the blood that was in the car and in the garage and in the house. They later found her blood mixed with Fotis's blood on a faucet and also his DNA on a doorknob inside her home, as well as evidence of an attempt to clean up the scene. And they found that with that luminol and looking specifically at areas within that home. But investigators' suspicions turn quickly to Fotis. Dulos. At the time of his wife's disappearance, the two had been locked in an extremely bitter divorce battle for about two years. When Jennifer initially filed for divorce in June 2017, she expressed worries that her husband might harm her. But as the conti- but as the case continued forward, she also said, and she expressed this to friends and family as well as the court. But she said that Fotis was irrational, unsafe, bullying, threatening, and had controlling behaviors. But Fotis and his family and those who knew him called all of these accusations baseless. Next, though, detectives used cell phone records to determine that Fotis Dulos and Traconis, who lived together in that house that Fotis used to live in with Jennifer in Farmington, Connecticut, were indeed in Hartford on the night that Jennifer Dulos went missing. The other key piece to this case is that surveillance footage that the police took into account, which shows these two dumping trash bags along a miles-long stretch. Now, why would they do that if they did not have something to hide? Ordinary and normal people do not go out in the middle of the night and deposit trash bags across a city in different trash locations. It just simply does not happen. When the police checked these trash cans from the surveillance videos, they found items that were bloodstained with Jennifer's DNA, including her clothing, paper towels, and and a whole ton of cleaning supplies. There was also at least one black garbage bag that had traces of Fotis's and Traconis's DNA. The police also found, and I did not hear about this until I saw the later evidence on this case, but they found zip ties, four of them, with Jennifer Dulos's DNA. Two of these were also stained with her blood, and they feel like they are pretty sure that Photos Dulos had used these zip ties to restrain Jennifer. But on June 1st, the police arrested Photos Dulos and Traconis, charging them with hindering the prosecution and tampering with evidence. This was not new news. The news reported on this as well. But other evidence tampering charges came up in September. Both Fotis and Traconis have pleaded not guilty to these charges. They want to make it clear that they're going to court, and until these charges are proven, these people should be considered innocent until they are actually proven guilty. But after the first arrest, Traconis began meeting with investigators. And I think most people looking in on this case from the outside, as soon as we heard this, we were immediately like, okay, this woman's going to flip on him, because that's typically what happens in cases like this. But over the Over the course of three interviews, Traconis gave police conflicting and contradictory statements, sometimes within the same conversation. And the police also found handwritten notes, which they called alibi scripts. And they found these at Fotis' home, and they purportedly showed 
he and Traconis whereabouts and activities on or around May 24th. So these little notes were both of them reminding each other how to keep their story straight and what to tell the police when they were questioned. But on June 2nd, just to recap what happened in this case, Traconis told the police that she and Fotis had woken up together on the morning of the apparent murder, showered, and then had some intimacy between them. But evidence showed this was not the case. And in later interviews, Traconis admitted the alibi scripts were false. So she's admitting flat out to the police and other people that she lied. Surprise, surprise. By August, Michelle Traconis had told the police that she could not account for Fotis Dulos's whereabouts on the morning of Jennifer's disappearance. Major, major red flag. And then there's Mohini, the third person charged in this case, who was accused of helping provide Fotis with a possible alibi. These same alibi scripts that we referenced earlier mentioned that Mohini had visited Fotis and Traconis and confirmed that he was at the couple's home that day for a previously arranged meeting. Mohini initially denied having a meeting there, but cell phone records placed him in the home according to court documents. And then detectives said that they used surveillance footage to track photos from his home in Farmington to Jennifer Dulos's home about 75 miles away on May 24th. So these two people, in the middle of going through this extremely bitter divorce, live about 75 miles away. There's no way he should have been in that area unless there was something bad going on. The police say they believed Fotis had borrowed a red Toyota truck that night from one of his employees that had parked the truck outside Fotis Dulos's home in preparation for Fotis borrowing the truck. But using traffic camera footage, the police tracked that same truck, the little red truck, along state roads to New Canaan. Cameras on school buses also showed it parked just 100 feet from the spot where Dulos's car was later discovered. So I know he thought that he wasn't going to get caught, but it's amazing what cameras are out there. Folks, there are always cameras. You cannot hide from the closed-circuit television cameras that are everywhere. Grocery stores, gas stations, school buses, public places. These cameras are literally everywhere now. But... They used those cameras to track Fotis's whereabouts and the presence of these vehicles that they later came to conclude the Fotis had borrowed. But investigators believe that Fotis had traveled the three miles to Jennifer's home on a very distinctive French-made bicycle. Footage later showed a man in dark clothing riding a similar bicycle in New Canaan. Who would have thought? This sounds so bizarre to me. How long did Fotos Dulos have to sit here and consider this plan before he went and enacted it on his ex-wife? Super interesting, but the police believe that he was lying in wait at Jennifer's home where he attacked her and then attempted to clean the crime scene up between about 8.05 a.m. and 10 a.m. He then drove Jennifer Dulos's body away in her own car before driving the borrowed red truck back to Farmington. And this, you know seems extremely sad to me that he thought he could get away with this. And it's only a matter of time before police find that body, I think. But days later, 
Photos, according to the man who he borrowed the red truck from, Photos took the truck to be washed and detailed, and surveillance footage shows the, and confirms this, as well as Traconis's testimony. But the person that Photos borrowed the truck from says that Photos repeatedly insisted that the seats in the truck needed to be replaced. Now, why would he do that? Unless there was some suspicious stuff going on. Now, the man who owned the red truck eventually swapped out the seats, but he became suspicious of Fotis's persistence. And according to this man's attorney, the man who Fotis borrowed the truck from held on to the original seats and eventually gave them over to investigators. This was one of the best decisions of his life, according to this man. And the police later found Jennifer Dulos's blood on at least one of those seats. But as we know, Fotis Dulos has repeatedly denied any involvement in Jennifer's disappearance and has consistently told investigators he believes his wife is still alive. His attorney also says that we, quote, we defy the state to prove that she is in fact dead. Through their investigation, law enforcement agencies conducted massive searches for Jennifer Dulos. They have dispatched helicopters and drones and sent cadaver dogs out to a trash plant. They also unearthed the potential grave site that they linked to Mahini. Every time, though, they have come up empty and they still cannot find Jennifer's body. In August, though, police presented a summary of their collected evidence, which included blood spatter analysis, multiple blood stains, and the items found along the road in Hartford. But they determined that Jennifer had sustained an injury or multiple injuries that would not have been survivable without immediate medical intervention. And this is all according to the warrant. They've characterized Jennifer Dulos's death officially now as a homicide. And now we just have to see how this case unfolds. My guess is the girlfriend's going to flip. She's going to give some information. They're going to lead them where... The body is. Now, Fotis Dulos may not have told anyone where the body is. He might be the only one that knows where that is, but maybe there's going to be a plea bargain that's going to save him from the death penalty or something of that nature. We have only to hang out and wait and see what happens on this case, but it is super, super interesting, and I can't wait to see how the rest of it unfolds. So the next case that I want to talk about tonight is a very sad one as well. And this originally came out on ABC News. The author is Christina Carrega. And this was missing teenager Harley Dilly found dead in a chimney. Almost four weeks after 14-year-old Harley Dilly disappeared while walking home from school in Port Clinton, Ohio, his body was found trapped inside the chimney of a vacant home. Dilly left his home on or around December 20th to go to his last day of school at Port Clinton High School before the holiday break, but he never arrived. Port Clinton Police Department Chief... Robert Hickman tried not to break down in tears during a press conference on Tuesday where he announced that Dilly was dead. This appears to be an accident and no foul play is expected, he also reported. Investigators re-canvassed the area on Monday and decided to search the summer home nearby that was under renovations, but there was no evidence of forced entry and since it was a lockbox, anyone could have come and gone out of the house. So police and investigators went inside of the house to check on things and when they entered the second floor of the house, they found Dilly's jacket and glasses next to a brick chimney and his body was caught inside. 
Ottawa County's coroner office determined that Dilly's preliminary cause of death was compression asphyxia. The final autopsy is waiting the toxicology report. But the chimney is between the second and third floors and is 9 by 13 inches, which seems like a very very small space that this young boy squeezed himself into. But the hunt for Dilly began December 22nd, and the Port Clinton Police Department provided daily updates on its social media account, hoping to find this young boy alive. But eventually, investigators released a surveillance image of the last known sighting of this young boy crossing the street in front of his home, which was on or around the 500 block of East 5th Street. He was wearing a thin maroon puffy jacket. After this boy disappeared, though, an Amber Alert was issued and approximately 75 law enforcement agencies, including the FBI and canine search and rescue teams, as well as helicopters, scoured over 150 acres to try to find this boy. Members of the community band together and they raised about $18,000 in reward money for information leading to Dilly's safe return and to assist with search efforts. Now, I think people thought that maybe he had been kidnapped or he'd run away and that he would come back safe and sound. But on Saturday, over 100 members of the community volunteered to conduct their own search, according to the search party of Harley Dilly Facebook group. But on Tuesday, the Amber Alert was canceled because he was recovered. And this is according to the Ohio Attorney General's office. And it is such a sad outcome. I mean, who could have known or prevented something like this and or anticipated that a boy would go into an empty and vacant house and get stuck in a chimney? It just seems like such a bizarre and unreal thing to anticipate or even expect to happen. But, you know, we send out our thoughts and prayers to the family of this young boy that they will eventually be able to give him a proper burial and that the GoFundMe accounts for this young boy will be able to cover his funeral expenses. And we'll put a link to this article in the show notes as well so that you guys can get some more information if you would like that. So the last article that I'm going to talk about today was an interesting development that I saw in the news over the course of the last couple of days. And I know that we've talked a lot about genetic genealogy in the news and helping to solve cases, but are there other purposes that companies collect this DNA evidence for? And this article actually came out initially in Popular Mechanics, and the author was Courtney Linder, and the title of the article is 23andMe May Have Used Your DNA to Develop a New Drug. So you probably signed up for a 23andMe profile because you wanted to find out where your family is from, and not because you wanted to help develop a new drug from your spit. Now, I actually signed up and did this as well, and I had no idea that your DNA and your spit used through this company could be used for this purpose. But of the genetic testing companies, more than 10 million users, a vast majority have consented to have their DNA used in 23andMe's research endeavors. This includes the development of pharmaceuticals. And if you're one of these customers, you probably did not even realize what you were signing up for when you downloaded the app and sent in your saliva. And it turns out you've helped create a new drug meant to treat psoriasis. Psoriasis is an autoimmune disease that causes red and scaly patches on skin. And according to Bloomberg, 23andMe has sold the rights to that drug that they created using your spit to a Spanish pharmaceutical company called Almerol. 
working with Animal Morale, we're pleased to be furthering 23andMe's mission of helping people benefit from genetic insights, said Kenneth Hillen, head of therapeutics at 23andMe, in a recent press statement. Nobody likes to read the terms of service for products that they're using, but when it comes to your own DNA sequence, it's better to be safe than sorry. And if you think you haven't consented to your DNA being used in this way, here's the bad news. You probably did give 23andMe the green light to use your DNA in commercial products. According to 23andMe, about 80% of users consented to the firm using their data for research including drug development purposes. And this is a huge swath of health data. Now, aggregate data is data from multiple users that has been combined to minimize the possibility of exposing an individual level of information. The company says it only shares summary statistics, which are stripped of any personal information from analysis they conduct internally. An example of summarized data includes statistics like 27% of men in their 30s reported being in good health, but also reported feeling depressed. So a lot of people think at least you'll get a cut of the profits that come along with developing this new drug, but that is not the case. Per 23andMe's terms of service agreement, you, the user, understand you should not expect any financial benefit from 23andMe as a result of having your genetic information processed, made available to you, or as provided in their privacy statement and TOS, shared with or included in aggregated genetic and self-reported information shared with research partners, including commercial partners. There are many more clues on the company's website customer care section filed under before you buy and privacy. The company includes information on data sharing with third parties and 23andMe in particular notes it doesn't share individual level genetic data or survey responses with third parties without asking for explicit permission. However, there's a caveat here. If you've given consent to the company to use your genetic data for research, it will be used in aggregate without any identifying information like your name or other contact information that can be published in scientific journals. So don't worry, they're not going to give your private and personal information away. It will be more generalized and all the personal data erased from it. This was also the case with this new psoriasis drug that they developed. There's another caveat, though. Even if you didn't give the company your permission to use your DNA in aggregate, 23andMe says on its website that regardless of your consent status... The company may still include your data in any aggregate data that is disclosed to third-party research partners who will not publish that information publicly in things like scientific journals. In other words, researchers working with 23andMe can still see your data as part of an aggregate. That means it's nearly impossible to tell exactly what all is being done with your genetic information once it goes to these companies. But how do you opt out? Do you want to use these programs and still look at your DNA and still see your family research behind it? How do you opt out of these? To find out if you've opted out of 23andMe's research, log on to your account and take a look at your preferences page. Under the research section, you'll see a summary of what you've consented for the company to use your data for. There are two possible messages you may encounter. One where you did and one where you did not provide consent to the research consent documents. 
There, you should also see a hyperlink to change your consent options if you want to opt in or opt out of the program. Now, I highly recommend you go into your account and check that out if you have signed up for programs on 23andMe or Ancestry.com. But 23andMe also says, though, that once you've opted in to participate in research, for instance, if you didn't know that you had opted into it, you can withdraw that permission at any time. Choosing not to participate will not impact your access to your own DNA reports in any way. Very, very interesting stuff. If you want to find out more information about that, we'll put the link to this article in the show notes. It's interesting, though, to see the many purposes that these DNA tests are now serving as we continue to grow and develop these DNA services. Very, very interesting. I can't wait to see what else they're going to start coming up with. I personally do not find that I'm offended by the use of DNA aggregate to create medicines and medications for people. If it can help us cure illness and sickness and provide some positive benefits to the general population, I am all for it, folks. In any case, this is the point in the podcast where we wrap things up. We hope that you've enjoyed this very special mini episode and please rate, review, and subscribe to our little podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can certainly shoot us an email. We're at the podcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our social media pages, and we're at the BFD podcast. Any one of these are great folks. We love your emails. We love it when you guys interact with us on social media. It's really important to us to get your support. We have people that message us frequently or drop us a DM. We always, always, always respond to them if they're appropriate and not doing something crazy. But we appreciate your feedback and suggestions through those methods as well. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases, particularly current events and updates to cases we've already gone over. But good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!